I think there's good value uh, in both townhousing and uh, the apartment space. Now, caveat, you've got to find the good stuff, not the, not the shitty stuff, which is falling down or past its use by date or from a you know no-name developer that's a shonk, right? Uh, or from a building that is 10 or 20 years old, which is, you know, who built the thing, right? Where is the person who built this? Where is the developer? Are they actually, do they even exist? I mean, you gotta steer clear of that stuff. That stuff's a hot rock in the real estate marketplace. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show, a code cracker. We're going to continue the conversation about buying real estate in 2022. We're going to have the growth conversation. I don't want to be accused of seeing out 2022 and not providing some models when it comes to finding capital growth in an ever-changing marketplace. So this episode is dedicated to growth. Yes, growth is a big principle of real estate. Hey, if it's your first time tuning into the show, welcome aboard. All the episodes on the Urban Property Investor are lessons, so scoot about. Play the show in double speed as well. Get your life back. I do not sound like a chipmunk. And if you're a long-term listener, make sure you leave a review. Someone left me a one-star review. I can't believe it. I think uh, I am better than one star, but hey, if that's your opinion, uh, plug it in the system. We need those reviews to keep the show going. So if you're a fan and you haven't taken the time to put a review in, I would love your assistance. So why don't you press pause, do a little review, and we can keep the show plugging along. Uh, well, that's the end of me groveling about reviews. Let's talk growth. Growth is a big part of a property investor's journey. Growth provides a lot of seed capital for future investment. So it is critical for investors to make sure that if they are going to tackle buying real estate, they look for a little bit of capital growth on their journey so that they can turn that capital growth into more seed to fundamentally get more capital. Why we call it capital growth is because we need capital to grow. If we don't have enough capital to grow, we find ourselves usually, particularly later in life, uh, questioning the decisions we made throughout our life. In Australia, we're going to need a lot of capital to keep growing to create a financial solution. So as we know, the last couple of years in real estate has been bonkers. It's been crazy. There's been a lot of capital growth really primarily driven from the wealth effect, if you like, the wealth effect. So what next? What happens now that the pandemic seemingly is uh, past its use by date? Well, we've always got to go back to the basics. Remember, I teach the 4X growth plan. We want to find a good deal. We want to find a great location. We want to make sure we're in a long-term marketplace, which isn't a one-hit wonder. And of course, we want some of those behavioral logics around capital growth to influence our real estate, whether that's things like design, comfort, amenities, a great third place, somewhere to walk, 
Um, as we know, real estate is driven very much off its human experience or what the real estate provides a human being. So very important parts of the puzzle. And I think uh, 2021 really saw a lot of people gamble in the real estate market, go to speculative communities to buy real estate. No one really understands the long-term ramifications of many of those speculative marketplaces. So I want to set the scene of how to find growth in 2021. What are some growth models you can rely upon as a property investor? Now, uh, certainly when I analyze the marketplace, I can break it down into quadrants. Quadrant one is really suburbs that are quite often a little bit broke. They're on the end of the food chain as it stands. And the idea of those suburbs gentrifying over the next 10, even 20 years, even 30 years is fairly remote. Will properties probably go up in those areas? Yes, but slowly. The best thing you can do as a property investor in any market is to find yourself a quality piece of real estate. Quality trumps everything on the property market, uh, in the property market. So, there's four quadrants, right? We can invest in this inequality broke kind of place. And a lot of property investors do invest in inequality broke places. And the reason being is property investors struggle with the concept of affordability as much as the mum and dad home buyer in the marketplace. So, if we go to the next quadrant, the affordable real estate market, this is really where a lot of property investors shop. And again, I uh, don't want to sound righteous that there's uh, there's uh, that is not a place to invest because it is because a lot of property investors have a budget six seven hundred thousand dollars. And that's where the affordability meets the marketplace. Uh, the average wage in Australia, this is average, not median, uh, is like $90,000, right? That buys someone a $600,000 property. That's the affordable pocket of the marketplace. The trouble with the affordable pocket of the marketplace, it can either leapfrog and go to the next place of which we call quadrant three, which is aspiration, or it can drop down quite quickly and become a bit of a lemon, a property lemon. And we have covered that in a previous podcast that so we don't want to end up buying the lemons. Uh, and it's quite common for people to buy an affordable property and for it to go sideways or go backwards in value and become really part of of the disinvested, the properties that are at the end of the food chain. However, we want our property, if we can put it together, to leapfrog into the next section of the market, which we call aspiration. Aspiration is a great section of the marketplace because people love the place, they love the suburb usually, and they quite often are fighting each other to get into the suburb. When more people are fighting to get into a place, it creates consistency of demand. And of course, that is why we love aspiration. The next 
Quadrant, if you like, is the quadrant known as the prestige market or the discretionary end of the market. So again, if we can afford aspiration and today to buy an aspirational property, uh, really your starting budget's no doubt around probably a million dollars, uh, give or take, depending on you know city, uh, which city you're in. Um, you know, some cities even more, some cities a little bit less you have the opportunity to buy something that could potentially enter the discretionary end of the marketplace. And of course, real estate that ends up in the discretionary end of the marketplace rises in value quite sharply because of its price guide. Now, as a property investor, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm going to celebrate my 30-year school reunion this year, which is terrifying. I can't believe it. 30 years. In my 30 years of being inside the real estate market, I've seen uh, literally places or suburbs leapfrog one quadrant. I'm yet to see them leapfrog two quadrants. Perhaps if uh, I come back in 20 years and this podcast is still going, we might see the double leapfrog. Uh, What I mean by that is I have seen affordable properties become aspirational. Uh, I've seen aspirational properties become uh, discretionary assets I own real estate that has gone from affordable to aspirational. I own real estate that has gone from aspirational to today being very discretionary. You need millions and millions of dollars to own that real estate. I haven't seen affordable real estate go to discretionary real estate. In other words, go from affordable to aspirational, uh, from aspirational to discretionary. It's not to say I never will, but uh, I just haven't been investing long enough and I've been going 30 years. So let's, let's come back in 10 years and see if that's a thing. So the point of the conversation is, uh, depending on our budget, it really does uh, illuminate how and what type of assets we can go and buy. So the first model I want to coach you through and just consider me as someone giving you a brief. It's up to you to use the information. Um, I have, uh, you know, uh, some good information, but I'm not the only person, right? So feel free to dart about and get some other opinions, but make sure you leave that review. So the first thing uh, I'm going to talk about as a growth model is always the best growth model. It's quality trumps everything. It's as simple as that. And I've done some recent podcasts on the idea of understanding design and architecture and how architecture does influence property investment outcomes, how better properties, better performing properties, better built properties uh, just get a better result, right? Whether they're old or new, there is less of them. And by virtue of that, they are very, very, very uh, demand-led properties. And when people uh, buy real estate, it's easy to understand the quality ones because if they do go to auction, there's potentially 50 people at the auction. Um, Down the street, same suburb, you know, a property which is perhaps got some flaws in its design and appeal you know, there's two people at the auction, right? So again, demand trumps everything. Uh, Sorry, flight to quality or quality trumps everything. And the challenge for property investors, of course, is to find quality on a budget. And uh, that can quite often 
be a hard thing to do. And of course, quite often why rich people are getting richer is because rich people can afford the value that quality brings. And sometimes that is paying a little bit extra for property. And uh, I certainly have done that before. I'd rather pay more for a high quality property um, than the property is worth because over the long term, I know I'm going to get a higher level of capital growth. That's just the way it works. So the uh, initial pain um, is replaced by long-term gains. And really, when we analyze the real estate marketplace, um, the number one thing you can do is think about buying a property which is going to have good improvements. It's going to be in a good location. It's going to be uh, a good access point to land and, um, you know, or the 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 orientation, for example, the land content of the apartment, the villa, the townhouse, the house is uh, is good, right? We want to rank our properties as best as possible, and of course, being close to good economics makes a lot of sense as well. So, quality is everything in real estate, and I mentioned this a lot in my architecture podcast I did earlier in the year. That really, quality is driven by three outcomes. Provide shelter, manifest culture, and store wealth. It's as simple as that. And a lot of property investors buy the cheap stuff, which doesn't manifest culture or store wealth. It just provides shelter. They become landlords of the broke marketplace. They become landlords of inequality. Um, And again, you can win some years. You certainly can get... Um, a little bit of growth and that's great. But over the long term, we want to leapfrog where our asset is currently. We want to wake up in 15 years time and our property that we paid five, 600,000 for is 1.2, 1.3 million. It's leapfrog from the affordable end of the market to the aspirational pocket. It's happened to me so many times. Uh, properties I've bought literally 10, 15 years ago that were affordable, really they were places of emergence. They were areas which were uh, right at the time, they were manifesting culture, but the culture wasn't uh, completely refined. 15 years later, the culture is very refined. And as such, the storage of wealth is just so much better. And I've watched those assets go from affordable assets to today, People are, you know, clamoring to get into the neighborhood and, um, you know, buying an affordable property that um, is now in the millions is really a massive outcome. And we do that through quality. Now, again, it's getting harder and harder in Australia to find quality assets in an affordable space, right? So, uh, but it can be done. And a big part of my journey is to work out how to do that, is how to find something of good value in a marketplace which, um, uh, you know, which there is a lack of quality. So the investment principle of buying quality is just scarcity, right? That's what you're buying. If you were to Uh, discuss what you were buying, you would be fundamentally buying the idea that real estate, it has shortages. And the number one shortage, if you like, is interesting designed real estate. It's very, very scarce. Now, there was a recent um, 
uh, thesis on this kind of thing, right? Um, it's something that myself and so many other property people talk about. Like I guarantee you, if you went to any property investment podcast, the first thing the property investment podcast would probably teach you is that you got to consider that you want some of the better properties in the marketplace because they have a uh, correlation to the results you're going to get later from property investment. All property investors have bought a lemon. I've bought a lemon. I've bought a property which was affordable, which has now just gone backwards in value. Why did I buy it? Because I had a notion in my head that uh, I had a budget, I had a borrowing uh, capacity at the time, and I needed to get in the market. I got caught up in the uh, hysteria of real estate, and there is a lot of hysteria in real estate. Now, there was a recent domain um, uh uh, report into do better design properties make people more money and they found a property um, which was bought uh, at the same time many many years ago two properties side by side at the time they were both very simply designed um, designed for that era 20 years ago one property went on to be renovated and had uh, new kitchen you know some work done when it comes to landscaping of the backyard, had uh, beautiful trees planted, um, you know, integrated wine fridges, and, and it became a, a real statement piece. Both properties uh, started out the same. One went on a different journey through renovation. And uh, the capital growth rates are completely different. The renovated, nicer property uh, ended up getting an annual capital growth rate of 9%. The property, which was very basic, um, we could use the word, for example, homogenous, very simple, ended up getting a capital growth rate of 5%. So when they both sold, uh, the um, renovated property got around a $400,000 gain, right? And obviously, you have to factor in the renovation. And when they worked out the renovation value, um, they worked out the gain was significantly more. It was like, um, from memory, like $180,000 more. So yes, in that example, someone had to go and renovate to create that flight to quality dynamic. And renovation is very capital intensive. That person needed to borrow or or pay in cash, you know, that extra sort of 200 odd thousand dollars to make that extra $200,000 gain or $180,000 gain. However, we can sometimes just do that by buying well to begin with, whether that's the secondhand property or the new market. Um, the reality is there's a shortage of really nicely designed properties in the market. So as a property investor, what we want to invest in is the idea of scarcity. And so as a growth model in 2022, the quality uh, model is here to stay. It's never, in fact, there's never a year where the quality model doesn't work. And hence why um, I will uh, mention it one more time. You guys have heard me talk about it a hell of a lot um, because I've done some episodes this year on it. Uh, particularly through my architecture series. But at the end of the day, um, if we can get some scarcity in the marketplace in a very, uh, with a very limited budget, 
that goes a long way. And without sort of disrespecting everyone, let's face it, real estate today is uh, is expensive. To get really high quality stuff, you're going to need millions of dollars. So if you can find really good quality real estate at circa $600,000, you should grab it. You should grab it. And uh, there's some elements to that that we teach, of course, is the location is important. The, the quality of the design is important and, of course, you know, how the land works, how it interfaces with the community. Um, and remember, the three big things that we're looking for when it comes to leapfrogging, the quadrants, we're looking for the manifest, manifestation of culture. We're looking for the storage of wealth. And when we analyze the storage of wealth, it's a big conversation that, you know, quite often some suburbs, people stay longer. They store wealth longer. Uh, The storage of wealth is people look after their neighborhood better. They are house proud neighborhoods. Uh, The storage of wealth is uh, suburbs, even streets become even more tightly held. Remember, real estate can be shelter, which is the most simplest form But if it manifests culture and stores wealth, it creates incredible capital gains. So for me, the number one model always is quality trumps everything. And as a property investor, if you can afford to get some quality into your your portfolio, it's probably the best thing you can do. Now, it's very hot in this room. If you're watching me on uh, YouTube, you're probably seeing some uh, little drops of sweat. Um, I apologize for my look. Uh, it is stinking hot today and uh, I am just sweating. Um, so we're going to go to the next growth model. Uh, if you're on a podcast, you're like, why is this dude talking about sweat? Uh, next growth model, I think, has been proven, right? And this is really... Uh, something which I've been teaching for a long time. I call it the urban behavioral economy. It's proven. Uh, I talked about the urban behavioral economy five, six, seven years ago. I said to everyone, what we need to do, the great shift is here. We need to go to lifestyle suburbs and buy as close as we can to lifestyle precincts because lifestyle precincts are going to be worth a hell of a lot of money. Lo and behold, long comes a pandemic and pushes everyone uh, around. And of course, the end result of that is people uh, love lifestyle suburbs. So the live, work, play model of a suburb being able to be a great place to live, a great place to even stay at home and work from, but also that play factor of uh, you know the suburb offering Great walkability, great cyclability, a place to take your dog for a walk, uh, uh, perhaps a little urban forest, a great coffee culture, a great set of local shops, a great set of community things is very, very valuable. And in the urban behavioral economy, I teach that we want a suburb where we can live, work, play, where there's a high level of skill in the suburb, knowledge. Uh, where there's a lot of wellness, where people spend a lot of their time feeling better. Uh, And I know that sounds strange to analyze as a property investor, but better community manifests better culture. 
better culture creates wealth uh, from real estate, right? And of course, mobility, the ability to get around. And I think a lot of people have gone um, a bit too far, like a lot of people have gone to weird, sleepy towns where there is the ability to live and play. But uh, I think uh, in some respects, the work from home movements have been a little bit overstated in the context that work um, is going to become a thing. Competition inside of work will become a thing if unemployment rises and we go back to some some you know, uh, larger levels of unemployment, work will be a thing. Already in the United States, like Google pays people based on their postcode. Um, so, you know, I was reading that, you know, you can't earn a New York wage and go and live in, you know, Nebraska. Um, so all of a sudden work and, and what that is, if we leave much of the urban economy, I think, um, or, you know, places that are, you know, drivable to our CBDs and all of a sudden we're, you know, too far off the grid, that work thing gets stressed out. And of course, a lot of those smaller communities just don't have that alpha people in them, right? And what I love about living in Sydney is you you kind of meet alpha people. You meet people who are trying to change the world. You meet people um, who have a lot of talent. And of course, you get that knowledge concept. And of course, the best schools are quite often associated with some of the bigger urban areas. And of course, mobility is the thing. The ability to move around. Um, if you live in a suburb which has got everything within 20 minutes, that's great. But if it's even better, if it's connected to um, a major uh, jobs cluster, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But all in all, the live, work, play model is here to stay. So if you can choose a lifestyle suburb for capital growth, you're going to do well. What is the scarcity you're investing in? Well, the scarcity is there is just not enough lifestyle suburbs to go around. And of course, um, you know, coming from Sydney, for example, there's probably 50 high quality lifestyle suburbs, but there's 300 suburbs. So, 250 suburbs of the 300 are not lifestyle suburbs. The people in those 250 suburbs, which are not lifestyle suburbs, dream about living in the 50 suburbs, which are lifestyle suburbs. What fundamentally happens is that giant pool of people, uh, some of that giant pool of people um, ultimately uh, aspire to move across to the livable areas and you get this demand effect. Remember the quadrants, quadrant one, inequality, quadrant two, affordability, quadrant three, aspiration, quadrant four, discretionary. What happens is people try and find that aspiration. A lot of that aspiration is delivered from livable neighborhoods. Uh, The idea of a suburb being highly prized because of its livability. And again, um, what I love to do is study the affordability gap. Like what can people borrow? Where is that nexus point of what people can afford? Then go and find a highly livable suburb that matches that affordability. When you find that suburb and you match it to the affordability, you find a gap. That gap is actually a huge 
demand gap. In other words, uh, quite often we concentrate on supply, but what does the demand want? The demand wants an affordable yet highly livable suburb. When we find that, we find the uh, ingredients, if you like, for a neighbourhood to go from uh, affordable to aspirational. And that's what we're kind of looking for, right? It's a good combination. And of course, today it's difficult, right? It's difficult. You know, uh, there was recently a property that went to market in, um, you know, an innocuous Blue Mountain suburb. Uh, It was advertised at like $700,000 for a three-bedroom house. And I think there was, I read in the paper, something like 450 people going to that open home. Why? Well, the suburb carried livability. Um, A lot of the Blue Mountain suburbs do carry um, a lot of wellness, right? Because obviously it's the Blue Mountains. Um, 700,000 is what people can afford. And so you get this kind of... um, amazing, amazing uh, combination of people um, looking for this type of stuff. And so when you find this uh, affordability versus versus livability demand gap, you can find capital growth. And a big part of my job this year is looking for this. It's tough. It's tough. I'm not going to lie. But uh, I've identified a couple of places, um, particularly in Brisbane, particularly in Melbourne, uh, and and less so, but also in Adelaide. Great places, highly livable, will do very well over the long term. And in 2022, just a f- formidable growth model. Now, this has happened to me. I've bought properties at six seven hundred thousand dollars the affordability range and then today when i fast uh look at those properties they've gone on to double in value they've actually uh now because they sit in the aspirational section of the market they went from affordable to aspirational now they are in the aspirational section of the market they're continuing to grow more because of the cultural manifestation the market has already manifested what it means. So live, work, plays the thing, as we know, uh, getting down and dirty in our local suburbs are now a thing. The better the local suburb, the better the result for capital growth. Those two are not going away anytime soon. They are not a fad. They are here to stay. Those two being quality trumps everything and a highly lifestyle suburb connected to an urban landmass is going to be continued growth, growth, growth into the future. Right, the next model I think we should cover off when it comes to growth is the model of uh, the idea of macro influences. Now, without question, when I'm studying the supply and demand charts at a macro level, the marketplace is undersupplied of stock, and I don't think that's going to be fixed for several years. So supply is not going to come in and reshape marketplaces. And I think this is this is incredible news for property investors because, again, um, we as a nation have created uh, zombie urbanism before where, like, Buildings are built, no one lives in them, and it takes years for 
that stock to be absorbed. We've created um, large parcels of land being opened and corridors in the past, and it takes years and years and years for that land to be absorbed. Now we're at a point where completions into the future are just have fallen off a cliff. And so um, when I analyze from a growth perspective, the stock levels coming into Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, uh, Hobart, Adelaide, that they're not looking good. And I think what we will see as a growth model is a challenge with supply. And of course, this is going to absolutely mean the real estate market should hold its own. And generally, when there is a lot of competition, then there's a lot of stock dumped on the market, we can see uh, the real estate market curtail and uh, have to deal with that. And we're not going to see that. So from a growth model point of view, because there is no stock, we're actually going to see yields increase. And again, that yield conversation is a big conversation. We're going to see uh, a transformation of the rental market. And of course, what this is going to do is soften any conversation when it comes to interest rate movement. And again, from a macro level, when I look at uh, cities, when I look at places, I look for mission fit capabilities of that real estate marketplace. How mission fit is, I don't know, Kararong Beach, you know, next to Jervis Bay. I don't know. Properties are very expensive there. It's a very nice place. Um, a lot of people have uh, bought themselves, you know, two homes and holiday houses and things like that. But I don't know how mission fit that place is, right? Like if the shit goes down, um, if jobs become harder to find, like what happens to these places where people have rushed off to? I'll tell you what happens in the cities, uh, not much at all. And uh, that is because of diversity, right? And so I'm a big fan of major cities. Uh, and I think from a growth point of view, when we look at long-term growth models, um, I absolutely think they're the, uh, some of the best bets. I also like feeder cities, you know, places like Newcastle. I mean, these are these are good places. And I think the regional conversation, if you like, has been somewhat, um, you know, misunderstood in a way. Like the Gold Coast is considered a regional market. But to me, the Gold Coast is not a regional place. It's, it's like a proper... It's got airports, international travel. I mean, um, it's not as regional as, for example, uh, you know, Bathurst. Bathurst to me is a regional place. Uh, the Gold Coast, Newcastle, these are big cities by Australian standards and they're big places by Australian standards. Geelong, to me, is not a regional place. It's, it's a larger Australian city. It's in the top... 10 places that Australians live. So though the regional growth has been strong over the last, um, you know, 2021 uh, and 2020, I think it's been overstated and the devil's in the data. Like I would consider that um, almost like um, part of the national cities uh, growth rather than regional growth. But that's just the way I interpret it by virtue of, 
you know, going to these places and going, well, there is mission fit economics in Newcastle. Like it's got great tourism, it's got great agriculture, it's got great mining, it's got uh, future economies linked to it, it's got great healthcare, it's got, uh, you know, great level of services, jobs, it's got the fire economy, it's got uh, banking, it's got insurance. So it makes sense, right? Like, so some of these regional places are great places, but in my interpretation of regional, they're not even actually regional. Regional is, uh, you know, uh, in my world, um, a little bit further afield. But when I think uh, we uh, analyze the growth rates uh, into the future and the model of growth, definitely supply is going to play a part. And of course, um, going to impact the real estate market. And of course, in 2022, we're getting some pretty strong predictions of anywhere sort of circa, you know, three, four, five percent growth to seven, eight, nine percent capital growth in many, many marketplaces. How can we speed that up? We can always use the Forex growth plan and buy well. The next growth model, which I think is a good one for property investors to consider, is the idea of mean reversion. Off the back of uh, the pandemic, there has been um, growth out in the marketplace and particularly in the housing market. Now, the housing market got um, influenced by the federal government's grant, right? So the federal government came out with a $25,000 building boost grant. Um, State governments kicked in a little bit extra. Um, as we know, if you just buy land and build on it, your stamp duty is even easier to pay. So all of this sort of land that was around the country has disappeared and uh, there is a building boom going on right now. And of course, um, what that has meant has all, uh, has meant that houses have been skyrocketing in value. And of course, there are some other elements at play, things like millennials, having some kids for the first time, looking for a bit more uh, space. You've got this sort of transformation unfolding. And of course, uh, what that has led to is a discrepancy between the value of a house to the value of an apartment. But as we know, um, our cities are making a bit of a comeback. I don't know, I was just in town like yesterday and I tell you what, it was pumping. It felt like uh, everyone was just having a, a wicked time. Um, there was new new bars open, new restaurants open. Um, and, you know, that model of proximity versus, um, you know, going further and further and further out for some land content um, is, is going to make a comeback. And we know the affordability of the market can generally afford an apartment but cannot generally afford a house. So I think we're going to see a bit of catch-up and we quite often call that mean reversion. All that means is to best understand uh, what I'm talking about, let's say typically a place gets 5% capital growth and over the five years for easy maths, it gets very little growth, no growth. Uh, all of a sudden, that five years of annual growth is kind of compounding on itself. So it means the market has about 25% growth after five years of what we would call catch-up capital growth. It's like a bit of a slingshot. And in economics, it's referred to as mean reversion. Mean reversion 
uh, is destined to unfold in the apartment marketplace. And the reason, of course, is there is still a lot of loner livers in society. There is still a lot of people downsizing in society and there is absolutely no apartment stock being produced. So if you restrict supply and when we look at the figures using Charter Keck Kramer, uh, you know, Cordell's, we can see that there is literally a lack of stock coming through the production pipeline. We know for the next three to four years that the stock is not coming to market. Now, think about building a house. Um, you can generally whack one up in, you know, six, seven, eight months if the land is registered. Um, think about building a block of uh, flats or, or apartments. Um, that's a three-year process, right? So we know that in 2022, there is very little stock. We know in 2023, there is very little stock in this market and 2024. We know that the affordability of the market is now directly zeroing in. It's like lasering in on this section of the market because someone earning $90,000 a year can borrow $600,000. Someone earning $90,000 a year who can borrow $600,000 uh, can't necessarily afford to buy just a house. And this is where I think there's good value uh, in both townhousing and uh, the apartment space. Now, caveat, you've got to find the good stuff, not the, not the shitty stuff, which is falling down or past its use-by date or from a you know no-name de developer that's a shonk, right? Uh, or from a building that is 10 or 20 years old, which is, you know, who built the thing, right? Where is the person who built this? Where is the developer? Are they actually, do they even exist? I mean, you got to steer clear of that stuff. That stuff's a hot rock in the real estate marketplace. But from, uh, from a mean reversion point of view, if we can find some good quality in the marketplace uh, and a good quality, remember the word quality, um, opportunity in townhouses or apartments you're going to you're going to see um catch up capital growth because never in the history of australia has the price of a house and the price of uh a townhouse or an apartment been so far apart and so naturally what happens either houses have to come down in value which is unlikely or apartments can catch up their value and reverse the mean that is needs to play catch up. And so when we look at, for example, the property cycle for um, particularly for Brisbane and Melbourne and Sydney in the apartment market, I mean, they are going into an expansion phase of their cycle. So in theory, we will see some capital growth when it comes to that marketplace. Over the longer term, um, again, just go back to your fundamentals, good location, good, um, you know, good, uh, good, good place, good land um, content or land, land for the apartment itself uh, or the townhouse and good design, right? It makes a lot of sense, right? Remember, we want to be in a suburb which is also manufactured Manufacturing culture. So, would I go out and buy an apartment in a weird suburb which manifests no culture? No, I wouldn't. That is not a growth model. Listen to the first growth models I'm talking about. The first growth model 
is flight to quality. Second growth model is lifestyle. Would I go and buy a lifestyle apartment in a cracking suburb um, connected to livability? Why not? Yeah, I already do. Like I, I, I make money out of that stuff. I, um, I've just, you know, seen some revalues on my apartment assets because they are connected to those precincts. So uh, I've been making money out of this stuff as a property investor. I'm getting equity from those assets. I just did a review on my assets last night. And, you know, in the last three months, I've seen some, some significant gains since I last looked, albeit paper gains based on data coming through the system. But uh, all of my apartments have gone up in value. Why have they gone up in value? Because I use the same methodology for a house and an apartment. Um, a lot of, I don't shop on affordability. And this is a big, big principle. As soon as you shop on, on affordability, um, you're, gonna, you're going to miss the golden rules of real estate, which is about you know where to invest and what to buy from an asset point of view. Now, as a general statement, though, I think the apartment market at a macro level has got some good things to come to it. I think it will perform really, really well. And we may see the headline switch from you know, uh, the idea that the acceleration of growth is is slowing in the housing market, but picking up in the apartment park, apartment market. Sometimes house movement is actually a leading indicator to apartment movement. It's kind of natural. So um, it's just the way it works. So, you know, just, just understand that I think government will also potentially look at um, – the affordability constraints in the marketplace and probably put some favorable outcomes into the uh, into the apartment section of the market. So remember, the conversation here is what shortage are we actually investing in? Well, the shortage is actually recent, like short-term lack of growth. That is the shortage, mean reversion. That is what we would be investing in. Um, if you were investing in the housing market, you've got to be quite diligent because you're investing in recent growth, right? That's that's the the trade-off, right? That is the trade-off right now. In the apartment market, at a broad level, just macro level, um, if you're investing in that, you're investing in a lack of growth. And again, um, there is no right or wrong. There's just understanding the, the conversation around it. And of course, uh, I think you're going to see some growth in this space, which is why I put it in as a growth model in 2022. The final growth model for me is the ripple of real estate. Um, without question, we uh, are seeing some of the more aspirational and discretionary suburbs become more and more expensive. Uh, there's a threshold as to where people go, well, what else can I find? What's nearby? What suburbs offer good value? Where is the ripple going? And of course, um, go and hunt for those suburbs. Usually those suburbs uh, also carry this lifestyle element to them. Now, quite often in Australia, we've been taught to understand that, uh, you know, real estate is best understood by going, well, where is the CBD? Um, then where are the inner ring suburbs to the CBD? Where are the middle ring suburbs to the CBD? And where are the outer suburbs, which are kind of greenfield, 
um, suburbs to the CBD. Now, of course, that has been a proven winner over time. And in fact, if you bought, you know, middle ring or inner ring um, houses and, and, and so forth and townhouses and apartments in the middle and inner ring of our big cities like Sydney, you would have done very, very well if you uh, took a long-term approach to buying. Um, and when I say long-term, you know, long-term's 15 years plus, right? Really, that's medium-term. Um, so, you know, think about that, right? It's 2022, 2020, 2012, 2007-8 is now a medium-term period of ownership. And when I look at the assets I bought in Sydney, I typically bought them around them. It's been a medium-term ownership. I bought them in those inner and middle ring suburbs of Sydney. They've flourished, right? They've, there's nothing but success from those assets. Again, that model is a great model if you can apply it to different marketplaces, Hobart, Adelaide, Melbourne, uh, Brisbane, great model. And for a lot of people, though, that model is dead because they can't afford uh, middle ring or, or those good inner ring neighborhoods of those places anymore or those cities. But cities have job zones, right? Uh, there are different job zones around cities um, and we call these national employment clusters or centers, if you like. And so think about it, right? Whatever city you're listening from right now has different job nodes. It's not all about, not every job is in the CBD. And CBDs, if you like, are just an influence from the fire economy. They are banks, they are insurance companies, and they are real estate companies for the most part in our CBDs. Um, they are tech companies, they are uh, basically um, law companies, right? These are the accounting companies. These are all part of the, the fire uh, engine, if you like, or most of them part of the fire engine. But as we know, scientific uh, companies, um, you know, um, uh, manufacturing companies, they're not based in the CBD. So one way to approach buying as a growth model, which I think will serve people in 2022 and beyond, is a focus on employment. Where are the jobs? Now, let's take Melbourne, for example. Melbourne, there is a job, a lot of jobs in the CBD, but there are also jobs in Dandenong. There are jobs in Monash, Latrobe. There are jobs in Sunshine and Werribee, right? They're all different jobs, you know. So let's take Latrobe, for example. Latrobe is a scientific center of Melbourne. Um, it's suburbs, if you're not familiar with it, you know, a good example would be Heidelberg. Heidelberg is a, a northern suburb of Melbourne. It is connected to the Latrobe Scientific and Education Precinct. Now, maybe we can't buy in the middle ring of Melbourne, um, you know, the middle ring of Melbourne, let's say a beautiful suburb like Baldwin. Maybe we can't afford that. Uh, but if we change the employment centre, maybe we can afford a middle ring suburb of the employment node. So, for example, Latrobe um, has middle ring suburbs, inner ring suburbs and middle ring suburbs around its employment cluster. So rather than change the strategy of looking for middle ring and inner ring assets, we simply change the way urbanism 
is distributed, okay? It's called distributed urbanism. In other words, let's still use the same rationale which has worked for Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne. You buy in the inner or middle ring and you make money, but let's just change where the job centre is and look for high-quality assets in the middle or inner ring of that jobs cluster. Does that kind of make sense, everyone? I hope so, because real estate in our cities has urban boundaries, right? There is the edge of the city. And again, if we can just be closer and connected to established, uh, highly efficient places, we get the infrastructure efficiency of those places. And again, I think um, we have... I guess, cross the Rubicon when it comes to price in Australia, like a lot of the, the established, really efficient uh, infrastructure places in our big cities are expensive for property investors. They're still great places to invest, don't get me wrong, but uh, to talk about them as the best place to invest, it's only going to serve people who can spend over a million dollars. So as a property investor, we have to think, we have to pivot, we have to use the information which has been granted to us from data. We can't be blind to this stuff. We know if we can find a job center and we buy really good quality real estate close to it, we're typically going to do well over the longer term when it comes to real estate. Now, you got to remember, there's going to be a lot of lemons. I think I mentioned that recently. Um, but overall, I think we're going to see a market in 2022 where demand still outweighs supply. And for that reason, I think there's going to be uh, a lot of stability around the real estate marketplace, to, despite things like budgets and elections and, um, you know, all the things going on in the in the world at the moment. Um, I think we're going to see uh, a pretty good year. So uh, get shopping, use those growth models if they help. I'll catch you again soon on the next episode of The Urban Property Investor. Don't forget, leave that review. Thanks for tuning in to The Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of The Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.